Uh, welcome uh, this evening to this lecture, this public lecture organized by the Department of International Relations here at the London School of Economics. I'll introduce myself. My name is Professor Michael Cox, or Mick Cox. I'm also in the Department of International Relations here at the LSE. It's a great pleasure for me to chair this uh, uh, public lecture this evening on a great topic. 30 years later, the Iranian Revolution, given by, I'm sure you'll all agree, and you'll conclude, a very great speaker, uh, a very great expert on the Middle East, uh, and many, many other things, I should say, uh, much missed here at the LSE from the, from the department. And I should also say, on a personal note, a very great friend, personal friend. I've known Fred for as long as the Iranian Revolution. LAUGHTER um, I lived in Northern Ireland for many years, and you'll probably know that Fred has a, an Irish pedigree, as we like to call it. Um, and we also used to have discussions about the Cold War many years back. And uh, Fred said very many nice things about me. <clears throat> I said many nice things about Fred. But we always say, we divided over the Cold War, but we united over Ireland, and how to deal with that question. Fred, of course, comes from Ireland, from the town of Dundalk, which, for those of you who don't know your geography, is just south of the thing called the border, in the Free State, as it was once called, in bandit country, although I'm not sure Fred was much of a bandit. Uh, Fred made the long march, just to mix my metaphors, across the Irish Sea. I'm not quite sure how you do that, but he managed to do that, to school in Ampleforth, and then on to university at Oxford, uh, the School of Oriental and African Studies, and then finally to the London School of Economics here. I think first in 1983, Fred, and then you had rapid promotion to professor, I think, a couple of years uh, later. Fred was one of the great figures in the IR department, I'd almost say, I think I would say, the superstar, one of the great superstars of that department. And the reason for that, apart from Fred's many uh, contributions, of course, is enormous range intellectually and on a range of subjects. The Cold War, revolutions, where we first had many discussions, international relations, world politics, IR theory, the study of Islam, and the study, obviously, of the Middle East, and particularly of the Iranian Revolution. I think yours was probably almost one of the very first books to come out, Fred, at the time of the Iranian Revolution in 1978 and 79. So 30 years after the fall, of the Shah of Iran and the advent of Ayatollah Khomeini to power, the Iranian revolution continues to exert a dynamic ideological and political influence across the Middle East. I don't think there's anybody better equipped to deal with this question 30 years on than our very own Fred Halliday. Fred, welcome back. At the recent opening of the exhibition on the Safavis and Shahbas in the British Museum, the head of the Tehran Museum, who was there, began not by using the customary phrases of the Islamic Republic, but by quoting famous lines from classical Persian poetry. Binamekhodavand, Binamekhodavand, Binamekhodavand. 
Uh, my God, I'm forgetting. Echaret. Anyway, there we are. <laughs> In the name of the Lord of the heart and of the intellect. And I think the subject tonight that we're discussing involves both John, both heart and intellect in dealing with the very difficult subject of revolutions. Let me begin with one or two general observations about revolutions. In one of the most succinct summaries of modern times, the German philosopher Hannah Arendt observed that the 20th century had been a century, I quote, of wars and revolutions. Now, this summary may at first sight appear obvious, but it raises many questions, analytic and moral, to which observers of the time, and those such as ourselves who succeeded them, have only very imperfect answers. Part of the challenge such events poses is that of explaining the causes of these sudden and dramatic events, something which even in the case of things as apparently well-documented and distant as the origins of World War I or World War II or the Spanish Civil War continue to be subject of great controversy. Equally contentious is that of evaluating their outcomes, whether they were positive or negative, whether these outcomes were structurally inevitable or politically contingent whether these revolutions or these wars were in broad terms constructive or destructive. And of particular concern to someone like myself who studies the international dimensions of major social events, there is the task of identifying in a way that is proportionate, neither overstating nor understating, how far it was international factors, factors beyond the frontiers of the country, that played a part in the onset of such conflicts and equally that of evaluating their international consequences. The debates and controversies surrounding major wars apply to an even greater degree to the discussion of major social revolutions. Revolutions are like wars. They're times of great combat, for crisis of states, the mobilization of millions and masses of people, of uncertain outcomes, of leaders who may be disastrous or may be inspired, who may be generous and who may be cruel. Revolutions exhibit the best and the worst in human nature and in the human condition. There are times when people imagine new worlds where they fight for them, where they throw off old shackles and traditions, and yet there are also times when new forms, new states of authoritarian and dictatorial regimes are established. There are times of hope, but times of destruction, death, and the ruination of many lives, millions of lives in the case of the Iranian Revolution terms of people driven out of their country. Revolutions, yes, are times of idealism, of heroism, the aspirations of millions for a better life, but also, as I say, of great cruelty, of disaster, and of sadness. In the usage of the term that contrasts with current concerns, we need to recall that the very word terrorism was invented in 1792 by the Jacobins in France, later used by the Bolsheviks in Russia, to denote their own use of violence, violence of states as a constant conscious instrument against their enemies and implicitly against their own peoples. Herein, as with war, lies the inherent pathos at once of dreams and of tragedy of both revolutions and war itself. Within the many controversies and passions surrounding discussion of revolutions, this pathos of hope and tragedy receives relatively little attention. Most writers on revolution either denounce them or glorify them. They're in favor or they're against. Some regard revolutions as malevolent, as avoidable, as accidents, as the results of treason, of conspiracies, of foreign hands, even of the BBC, even of professors at LSE, are denounced for bringing Khomeini or others to power. And others praise revolutions, who for all their mistakes and broken omelets and all the other idioms 
are seen as moments of historical advance and progress. Far fewer of those who attempt to capture both sides of the story, the heroism and the cruelty, the aspiration and the betrayal, the moments of emancipation and the recreation of repression and control, usually, certainly in the case of Iran and all other major revolutions, worse than that which went before. Yet this is indeed a central part of the history and the lived experience of revolutions and accounts in large part for the passion, the engagement, the bitterness, the confusion, the conspiracy theories which such events occasion. Of those who have discerned this pathos, it's perhaps not surprising that many have chosen to draft their ideas in literature. William Blake, in his Songs of Experience, written in 1794, after seeing the initial hopes of the French Revolution dashed, in his Songs of Innocence of 1789. Charles Dickens, in the first paragraph of his Tale of Two Cities, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. We were all going to heaven, we were all going directly in the other way. Two of the finest observers of the Spanish Civil War, the German historical sociologist Franz Buchenau in his The Spanish Cockpit and George Orwell in Homage to Catalonia, later generalized in his book Animal Farm, and arguably the finest of all commentaries, literary, philosophical, and psychological on revolutions, that of Albert Camus, L'Homme Révolté of 1951, translated into English as The Rebel, a brilliant, tense, many-sided, and profoundly perceptive account of the combination of hope and hatred, idealism and cynicism, utopianism and nihilism, which modern revolutions embody. Camus was above all reflecting on the legacies of the French Revolution and his debate at that time with Jean-Paul Sartre on the seductions and delusions of Soviet communism. But his work, over half a century later, tells us as much as any particular account about what was to follow in China, in Cuba, in Vietnam, in Cambodia, in his own native country, Algeria, and indeed in Iran. Camus pointed out that the red flag, the symbol of socialist and communist revolution in the 20th century, was originally adopted as a banner justifying the application of martial law in 1792. Herein, in the recognition of this necessarily dual moral and psychological character revolutions, lies an important lesson for our own times. It has become easy, much easier, after the collapse of communism in 1989, to argue that revolutions are illusions and are dangerous, gods that failed, and utopian projects that, thank heavens, the world is now rid of. But this is to mistake the two-sided dimension of revolutions, the very profound and idealistic reasons why millions of people engage in and are prepared to die and kill for them, and the necessary place, as much in the uncertain and unequal world of the 21st century as in the ideological set battles of the 20th, for continued emergence of utopias, ideals, and human dreams. The age of ideologies bequeathed for two centuries in 1789 may indeed have passed away, what Fukuyama, I think, largely correctly called the end of history. But the age of human anger, of revolt, of sense of injustice and entitlement by peoples, by classes, by religious communities and others, now fueled by information, technology, and the fantasies of globalization, most certainly has not. The academic analytic literature we have on revolutions much illustrates these points, but it does little to resolve them. <coughs> most accounts that we have of revolutions are singular historical narratives often of a strikingly enclosed character with little attention paid to external factors. Of the comparative sociology of revolutions, we have some fine examples. 
of which undoubtedly the rightly dominant work of a recent decades was Theodor Scotchpole's States and Social Revolutions, a comparative study of the French, Russian, and Chinese cases, published in 1978. The MSc course on revolutions in international system that I put on at LSE for a decade and a half, comparative study of revolutions in international relations, including the Iranian. The first, and so far as I know, only such IR course at master's level in the world, I relied heavily on her work, if also suggesting some criticisms. And today, Scotchwell's arguments are indeed of relevance. For all their domestic causes and consequences, revolutions were, I argued, she argued too, necessarily international and in four central respects, all of which are evident in the case of Iran. In their international causes, in the formation and consolidation of the post-revolutionary regimes, not least in the Iranian case, the results of the Iraq invasion, in the radical foreign policies they pursued and continue to pursue, and finally, in the longer-term inexorable constriction and decline of the revolution at home under international pressure. Yet history has, in its own way, forced us to raise doubts about Scotchpole's analysis. Scotchwell argued that revolutions were not made. They happened. They were structurally determined. Yet within a few months of the appearance of her book in 1978, in two countries, Iran and Nicaragua, there appeared to be challenges to the central tenet of her work as a result of revolutions carried out by agents, Ayatollah Khomeini and his movement in Iran, the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And in the case of Iran, it would also appear that her emphasis on the international weakening of the state did not apply because the Shah's regime was not challenged internationally. The collapse a decade later of the most ambitious and sustained revolutionary experiment of modern times, that of the Soviet Union's allies, a collapse is in its own way revolutionary, also posed many challenges that for Scotchpole and for writers such as the British realist E.H. Carr, who had rested the main part of their argument on the historically progressive role of revolutions as locomotives, moments of economic, of historic trans transformation and the like, and who had assumed, more or less, the durability of the transformations and authoritarian regimes such revolutions had created. All of this I myself sought with much imperfection of analysis and little apparent resonance anywhere in academic life or elsewhere <laughs> to reflect in my own 1999 book, Revolutions and World Politics, a comparative study of five great revolutions, France, Russia, China, Cuba, and Iran, trying to set them in their international context and to assess the role of revolutions such as these in the two centuries of world history that revolution with the capital R dominated 1789 to 1989. In some ways, more successful because more focused in approach and more sensitive to changes of historical context were the PhDs written and published by my students at LSE, engagements with the themes of the course, which in many cases went well beyond them to produce work of originality. Here in the work of international political sociology relating to revolutions by, among others, Hazel Smith and Richard Schwartz, Saul and China Meville, David Stein, Mohammed Hafiz, Alex Kolas, Nicholas Bisley, George Lawson, and in the case of Iranian students on differing approaches, Mehdad Khonsari, Mariam Pana, Reza Farzad, and Jubin Godazi, the issues of revolution international relations were applied to particular studies in a very rich way and published as books. This lecture tonight is therefore part of a much wider and necessary open work of research, comparison, and evaluation and is offered to Iranian listeners as to others in that comparative and analytic light. 30 years ago, in February 1979, the world witnessed with surprise, anxiety, and on the part of some expectation, the dramatic culmination of the Iranian Revolution. 
with the collapse of the hitherto powerful regime of Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, on the day he left in January, the slogan across Tehran, Shah Raft, Imam Ahmad, uh, the return to exile of, from exile of Ayatollah Khomeini in February, when three million people came to greet him, establishment in the following weeks of the Islamic Republic of Iran, and the ratification of a new constitution on the 1st of April. 30 years is not a long time in the lifetime of revolutionary regimes. Cuba has just marked its 50th anniversary. Russia lasted 70 years. But it's time enough to look with some calmer perspective on what was, by any accounts, one of the most unexpected, dramatic, and in the Middle East, Middle East at least, influential events of modern times. Now, some of you know events in modern Iran played a certain role in my own life. I first visited Iran in 1965. I was a student where I'd met Iranian students in exile in Germany while studying German from an opposition group, an independent Marxist group called the Neuruya Sevon, the third force. And I carried in my suitcase when I went by bus and train two weeks from Victoria Station to Tehran, <laughs> copies of their journal, Socialism, which I handed over in a secret meeting in a cafeteria somewhere in central Tehran to a gentleman who appeared at the appointed hour. I was then banned from Iran, uh, <laughs> but continued to have an interest and in the middle 70s was commissioned to write a book on the Shah's regime. I called the book Iran Dictatorship and Development. Dictatorship in order to criticize the myths of the Shah's beneficence and of his achievement, but development to stress the fact that the Shah had transformed his country and was, was changing. His claims as to what he's achieved were not justified, but the claims made by many on the left and on the nationalist forces that nothing had changed were also untrue, hence the title Dictatorship and development. I do not claim to have foreseen the revolution. It took me as much a surprise by anybody. Uh, but I particularly like the title given to the book when translated into Arabic by my good friend Mustafa Kukuti, Mogaddamat el Thawra al Irania, the prolegomena, the introduction to, or the precursors of the Iranian revolution. And of course, the Mogaddamat is also, to my great honor, the title of the famous work of historical sociology by Ibn Khaldun. From that experience, uh, I drew a number of lessons. First of all, in the summer of 79, when I was in Iran, invited by my publisher, Samir Kabir, I witnessed a very important chapter in the history of the revolution, which was the crushing of the independent left and of the liberal forces around the National Democratic Front by Khomeini's forces. I happened to be in the office of the liberal newspaper, Ayandagan, when the Pastaran came to close it down. And at first, it wasn't clear what was happening. Then I asked one of the pastors, he said, we are here to defend the revolution. He then, I then had an exchange, which is, forgive me, it's a little bit vulgar, but it summarizes their attitude. He said to me, in Ruslami, boast, this newspaper is shit. So I said, but two million people read it. And very calmly, he said, hope. So these two million people are also shit. Very calmly, he wasn't. They were accused of being CIA agents and all the rest of that. I also saw then, and have seen before and after, one of the endure, two enduring features of the Iranian people and culture, which I greatly admire. One is the role of literature, poetry, in life and in the humor, <coughs> the everyday social activity of the people. Uh, I'm not sure whether the younger generation can quote thousands of lines of Hafiz and Saadi and Mulavi, but certainly people of my generation could and did. 
And I particularly recall an incident a few years ago when the earthquake in Bama occurred. After a week, they dug out an old 90-year-old lady who survived without water or anything. And when they said, Khanom, how did you survive? She said, of course, I recited to myself classical Persian poetry. And I thought, this doesn't happen in London. <laughs> the other thing I remember is the humor of the Iranian people. The Iranians have a somewhat better humor, as you know, and the English are sometimes the object of it, with jokes I will not repeat here. Uh, but I remember... Uh, at the time of the revolution, driving up from central Tehran to Shemiran and Tajrish, the, the boys at the side of the road would be selling all sorts of things, and they'd be selling something called Ketabe Shukhiye Ayatollah Khomeini, the Ayatollah Khomeini joke book. And this was actually a selection of ribald anecdotes about the Ayatollah and also distorted selections from his own works about personal hygiene and sexual relations and the rest of it. <laughs> the revolution also occasioned its own black humor. There was a story after martial law was declared and people were to be at home by nine, it was illegal to be out of nine, of an incident on the corner of a street about seven in the evening, so two hours before martial law, there was a little patrol with the captain and some soldiers and a man was walking down the other side of the road. One of the soldiers looked at him, he knelt down, he took aim and he shot him dead. And the captain said, what do you think you're doing? It's only seven o'clock. And he said, nah, this is my friend Reza. He lives a long way away. There's no way he can get home in two hours. <laughs> As those of you who know Iran will also know, many of the jokes are about mullahs and akhuns. There's one I told at a meeting here in December, I repeat now, because I think it shows very well the contempt that many Iranians hold these people. There's a plane about to leave the airport in Tehran, and suddenly a mullah comes on and sits down on the first seat. And the hostess says, ah, oh, you can't sit here. This isn't your seat. You have to go to the back. He says, Boro Gom get lost. I'm going to stay here. Then the pilot comes up and whispers something in his ear, and the mullah rushes to the back. Bechoda, 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 and he sits down in the correct seat. So the hostess said, ah, oh, what did you say to him? He said, I asked him, where are you going? And he said, man, Esfahan Miram. I'm going to Esfahan. So I explained to him, this part of the plane was going to go to Tabriz, the back part was going to go to No way. But now, I'm, but now I'm going to play a trick on you, because some of the most Persian jokes don't translate, and people in the West don't get them, and they're bitter, and I'm going to give you one. All of you, or certainly I included, have had hopes at various points that this regime will fall. So then the rumor that they're on their last legs has been around since the first weeks they were in power. <laughs> so the story is that in 500 years' time, a man comes from Mars to Tehran, and they still call the main street even though it's called something else. And he says to the taxi driver, take me to the main street. And everybody there is holding up three fingers. And he says, Inche, what's this? And they say, don't you know? In three months, they'll all be gone. <laughs> but this is a, a joke which, as your response shows, is more Persian joke, but is actually, I think, is a very clear picture of the bitterness. And may I express a research hope? Everybody should produce research with, with further agendas. Somebody should produce a book of the jokes of the Iranian Revolution. It will make a very good read, and I hope somebody will do it. In dealing with major social and political revolutions, and such indeed was the case with Iran in 78-79, and as with other major and dramatic events, like wars or terrorist attacks, it is often wise to begin with some comparison. 
For all that revolutions appear to be, and for sure loudly proclaim themselves to be unique and unanticipated, they are, in closer inspection, often similar, if not totally so. And at the same time, for all their suddenness and for all the conspiracy theories about Dasty Inglis and the BBC and so on, they do permit of broader causal explanation. Such comparison also allows, in a more measured way, to identify the aspects of the revolution that were indeed singular and which people may not have regarded as such. In six major respects, the revolution of Iran base, bears comparison with its historic forebears, with France in 1789, Russia in 1917, China in 1949, Cuba in 1959. First, the revolution occurred because a broad coalition of opposition forces came together to overthrow a dictatorial and authoritarian regime, building on long-standing social grievances, but also mobilizing nationalist sentiment against a state or ruler seen as too compliant to foreign influences, and in the case of the Shah, someone installed in the coup of 1953. <coughs> the coalition that followed Khomeini's leadership ranged from liberal and Marxist elements to conservative religious forces it was, in effect, a classic populist alliance. <coughs> Secondly, the victory of the revolution required and was facilitated by not only the mobilization of large numbers of people, but the fragmentation of leadership and division within the state itself. Without this fragmentation of division, the state could certainly have survived. The threat faced by the Shah was nothing like that which Saddam faced in 1991 or Hafez al-Assad in 1982, and they dealt with it in a different way. But the Shah was ill, his advisors and generals were uncertain, the Americans were distracted. Hence the weakness of the state and the comparisons with Louis XVI, with Tsar Nicholas II, not to mention Charles I in England, are evident. Where were the middle classes? Many of them left the country. There's a moment when the Shah apparently turned to his Prime Minister, Hoveda, and said, you know, when de Gaulle was threatened in 68, his followers came out and demonstrated on the Champs-Élysées. Where are my followers? Hoveda said, Your Majesty, they are on the Champs-Élysées. <laughs> Thirdly, the revolution was not just political in the sense of changing the political elite and the constitution or legitimating the system of the country. It also had profound social and economic consequences, as well as consequences for gender, for dress, and indeed for forms of address. It is these latter social and economic changes which distinguish mere coup d'etats or rebellions from major revolutions. For better or worse, Iran today has a new social order, a new set of social values, even a new revolutionary elite, an Islamist nomenclatura, perhaps 5,000 people, united by ties of power, education, business, and not least marriage, and who control state revenues and the armed forces. Fourthly, while in its ideology the revolution propounded a new radical and egalitarian order, an imam is a man, the zaman imam, the time of the imam, uh, it also drew on pre-existing ideas in Iranian history, above all nationalism, and a sense of the country's historic standing and mission to sustain domestic support. Khomeini's slogan, na gharb, na shark, neither west nor east, reflected the fact that both the west, Britain and America, and the east, Russia, had maltreated and invaded Iran in the 20th century. Indeed, Khomeini at first refused to use the word for fatherland, Mihan, and he denounced secular nationalism as an insult to Islam. Islam as meligerai sili khodeast. Islam has been slapped in the face by nationalism. 
But with the Iraqi invasion of 1980, all this changed, and he and other leaders were given to using of Iran the term used by the French revolutionaries of the 1790s. The French revolutionaries talked of la grande nation, Khomeini and Khamenei of In Malate Bozor, this great nation with all the multiple meanings of the word great. A further dimension in which the Iranian revolution bears comparison with some others is that of the role played within it by distinct non-dominant, non-Persian ethnic groups. Here the precedents of several cases where social revolution at the center and among the dominant ethnic group produced not support but contradictory and sometimes extremely hostile responses among others from smaller national and linguistic groups within the country. An initial proclamation of the fraternity and solidarity of all peoples, in the case of Iran, obviously the fraternity of all Muslims, when pronounced by representatives of the new central, central revolutionary state, is often followed by violence, a result of the forced centralizing and new authoritarian tendencies of the center of the rhetorical delusion that revolutionary, or in this case Islamic fraternity, can realize itself and of the less seemly but almost universal tendency of revolutionary regimes to cast the leaders of other ethnic groups as separatist reactionaries and, of course, agents of foreign powers. This was the pattern followed in the first modern revolution in the Middle East, that of the Young Turks in 1908, who, after initial optimism in overthrowing the Ottomans, proceeded in varying degrees to alienate and clash with national groups in the Balkans, with the Arabs, with the Kurds, the Anatolian Greeks and with greatest human tragedy with the Armenians. A similar pattern followed a decade later in Russia. The Bolshevik states, after producing respect for the nationalities, after announcing respect for nationalities within its domain and indeed granting independence to one of them, to Finland, then proceeded to clash with nationalists in the Ukraine, South Caucasus and Central Asia. A few years prior to the Iranian Revolution, the world witnessed the revolutionary overthrow of another ancient monarch, also in a multi-ethnic country, that of Ethiopia, 1974. Within two years, the new military regime of Colonel Mengistu was at war with the Somalis, the Afars, the Tigrayans, and most damagingly of all with the Eritreans, who finally overthrew Mengistu in 1991. Any hope of reconciling the Eritrean Revolution, which had begun in 1961, with that of Ethiopia, was soon dashed and a familiar, dismal pattern of recrimination and war then followed. Iran proved to be only a partial exception to this pattern. Is my watch there, mate? Because I need to... Fred, I'll hold the glass. No, it's all right. Sure. Okay. I'm not defined gravity. Is my watch there? Your watch is here. Do you want your watch as well? Two days to go. Two days. <laughs> now, on this map, it is interesting that one of the tokens of modern revolutionary leadership is to give very long speeches. Uh, it's reckoned true. Fidel Castro has been speaking in working hours for about three years since he came to power. Gaddafi's not much better. Ataturk spoke for two weeks solid in working hours, and you can listen to it, the, the Buyuk Nuyuk, the big speech. Uh, but in the case of King Amanullah of Afghanistan, it had a very unfortunate result because he went to Turkey, he was impressed by Ataturk, so he came back and said, we're going to be a modern country like Turkey, so his family appeared unveiled, he did various things, and then he said, I'm going to give a long speech. But on the third day, the tribes revolted and drew him out of office. So that was the end of it. Anyway, um, Iran proved to be only a partial exception to this pattern of inter-ethnic conflict. To some degree, Iran is more like India than like Russia or Ethiopia. 
If we accept that roughly half of the Iranian population have Persian as their first language, we can see that for much of Iranian history since the Safavids, which is when modern Iranian history really begins, and indeed for the years of the Islamic Republic too, Iran has been a relatively successful, I would argue extremely successful, cohesive multi-ethnic state, with other communities sharing political, military, and economic power, be it under the monarchy or under the imam. However, major, however, major upheavals at the center, be they the Constitutional Revolution of 1906-08, the crisis of the 1960s, or the Islamic Revolution, have certainly produced conflict with ethnic minorities. The great surprise of the Iranian Revolution, at least to me and to my, some of my associates, was that of the nationality which did not revolt or clash to any significant extent with the new regime, or indeed seek secession as it had done before, namely the population of Azerbaijan, probably a quarter of the whole population of Iran, who had been active in the revolt in the 1900s and again in the 1940s. They did not seek to fight the Islamic Republic, and when they protested in regard to their spiritual leader, Ayatollah Shariat Madari, this was not on any visible autonomous or secessionist grounds. More contentious were relations with two other nationalities, the Kurds and the Arabs, both predominantly Sunni. Both had maintained, by force of circumstances, some links with the regime in Baghdad, and both were soon cast by Khomeini's agents as, as, as servants of foreign powers and traitors and subjected, particularly in the case of the Kurds, to severe repression. Of all the leaders of the period whom I had the privilege to meet, and I didn't meet Khomeini, although I was invited to do so, I, I couldn't think of anything to ask him, so I didn't go to Paris, um, which is a mistake, there we are. The most impressive person I met was the leader of the Kurdish Democratic Party, Abdurrahman Ghasimlu. He had been a Marxist. He had been a lecturer in economics in Prague University when the Soviet tanks appeared in that city in 1968. And this has had a profound influence on him and led him to adopt the values of more democratic socialism. He was later murdered by the Tehran regime in Vienna in 1989. When he came to London in the early 80s, he used to come to my house. And he told me that he had tried in vain to convince Khomeini of the justice of autonomy and had always insisted that the goal of the Kurdish movement was not independence, but autonomy within a democratic Iran. Democracy baraye Iran, khod mokhtari baraye Kurdistan. And he told me an interesting story that Khomeini didn't like the word self-government, khod mokhtari. He said it's un-Islamic. So he proposed the Arabic, khokmet that. Well, uh, since this was the word they used in Iraq without great success for the Kurds, customly rejected that. So Khomeini suggested a compromise, Khod Islam, Islamic self but of course this meant nothing at all. As the ordering of the slogan, Democracy Baray Iran, Khod Kurdistan, indicates, Qasimlu was well aware that a precondition for any meaningful, real, autonomous, or to use another language, federal system in Iran, had to be a functioning democratic system at the center. Otherwise, as in the case of Iran's two neighbors, Iraq and the Soviet Union, which had wonderful federal constitutions, the, the most liberal of autonomy laws meant nothing at all. In one final point, the revolution had explosive international consequences, leading to attempts evident in all the other cases as well to export the revolution to neighboring countries and through mobilization of enemies abroad to war between states, in the Iranian case, first of all, with Iraq. As with France and Russia in particular, the Iranian Revolution, seeking to promote its state interests and export revolution, and indeed they're the only revolution to explicitly to use the term Sudure Engela, export revolution, uh, soon acquired the characteristics of a revived empire. And in so doing, both mobilized support 
among some forces of the regime and antagonized others. Saddam Hussein used to denounce Khomeini as Margus, as a Zoroastrian priest. More recently, King Abdullah of Jordan has expressed concern about a new crescent of Shiism. And these reflect antagonism among the Arabs to Iran's role based on, if not images, then the mobilization of images from an earlier age. At the same time, just as in Bolshevik Russia, it was the civil war of 1919 to 21, more than the pure military coup of October 1917, which forged the Bolshevik regime. So it was the international consequence of the 1979 revolution, above all the bloody eight-year war with Iraq from 1980 to 1988, that more than the revolution itself shaped the politics, defined the state institutions, and steeled the will of the Islamic Republic. That those who were forged in that terrible war, such as President Ahmadinejad and his associates in the Revolutionary Guards, are now seeking to revive a revolutionary spirit and discipline of earlier years should come as no surprise. Stalin in the 1930s, Mao in the Cultural Revolution in the 60s, Castro in his rectification of the 1980s all sought to do the same thing and all in the end of course failed. But it is clear that 20 or 30 years after the revolution the initial authority and legitimacy of the regime is in question and this is what Ahmadinejad is, is aware of. The last time I was in Iran in 2000 I went on my first day to the tomb of Ayatollah Khomeini in the south of Tehran to see this extraordinary building larger than a huge football stadium with hundreds if not thousands of people gathering, praying, reciting stories, picnicking, sleeping, and generally uh, camping out. After being taken round by the administrator, when a remark I didn't click at the time, but he said this will be the third most important shrine in the Muslim world in a thousand years. Interesting remark. Uh, I got talking to a driver outside who had been in the army, was now a driver of the ministry. And I said, what is your view of the imam. And he gave a very clear reply which in essence presaged the crisis which the regime now has. Imam Sadebud, he said, Dorostbud, Dorok Nagoft. The imam was pure, Sade, the word you use for coffee without sugar. Dorostbud, he was straight. Dorok Nagoft, he didn't lie. Of course, Khomeini did lie, but his view was he didn't lie. Mesle Akharin Nabut, he wasn't like the others. And of course the Akharin are the nomenclature who now run the country. But it is this sense of lingering revolutionary puritanism and propriety which Ahmadinejad, with all his rhetorical nonsense, has tried to mobilize. The foreign policy of the regime, like that of its revolutionary predecessors, is what E.H. Carr called the dual policy. Diplomacy, negotiation, but also revolution. Here I have to enter a slight doubt about the accuracy of a recent television series about the benign diplomatic maneuvers of the Islamic Republic. So simple was it not, and so pleasant was it not. Uh, but I leave that for others to disentangle. But at the same time, revolutionary rhetoric led them, as with other revolutions, and if I may be allowed to say so with a certain element of Iranian arrogance as well, to overplay their hand. In modern history, we've seen several occasions when Iranian rulers overplayed their hand. Reza Shah, 1941, leading to his expulsion. Mossadegh, missing the chance for a deal in 53. The Shah, with regard to the opposition. Uh, and in the case of the Islamic Republic, as an Iranian diplomat remarked to me over lunch in Shemiran when I was last there, in his view, three fundamental mistakes born of overconfidence and excess radicalism. 
One, the detention of the American hostages, which turned the United States into an almost permanent enemy. Two, the failure to accept Saddam's offer of a peace deal in the summer of 1982, which would have given Iran a much more advantageous peace. And thirdly, interestingly enough, the failure to support the communist regime in Afghanistan, which in retrospect led to the rise of the Taliban and to anti-Iranian forces of what Khomeini used to call Islami Emrikai, American Islam. So in these respects, the Iranian revolution bears comparison with others, but there are also some important and obvious respects in which it was original and unique as all events, revolutions, and indeed people are. This is most obviously the case in regard to the leadership, the ideology, and the goals of the Islamic Revolution. Here we did not have the secular radicalism of earlier revolutions, all inheritors of 1789, but a revolution under the banner of Islam, with a clerical leadership, an apparent goal not of advancing to a new progressive future, but of returning to the model of Islam, puritanical and simple, of the age of the Prophet. One of the distinguishing features is this revolution did not promise greater material goods. Khomeini once said, we did not make this revolution for hendevane, for melons. Uh, when he left Iran to Paris, I went to visit First President Banisada. And I couldn't think, because I don't have high time for him, but I, I couldn't think what to ask him. So I asked him, well, what's, what was it like talking to Khomeini? Could you argue with Khomeini? And he told me an interesting story. He said that when the American blockade was imposed at the time of the hostages, they went to see Khomeini and they said, Aga, listen, if this goes on, the Americans are going to punish us. So Khomeini said, like what? They said, well, they're going to cut off our food imports. And Khomeini said, oh, in the time of the Prophet, people ate two dates a day. And what's good enough for the Prophet should be good enough for the people of Iraq. So Khomeini indeed had contempt for economics, as we know. He said, economics is for donkeys. And in that sense, the apparent goal, but I stress the apparent goal of the revolution, contrasted with that of others which promised material well-being. That this form of ideology and leadership were indeed unique, no one can deny, all the more so as many other Islamist revolutionary movements, such as those of Afghanistan, Egypt, or Algeria, and by extension, of course, Al-Qaeda, have, for all their religious rhetoric, non-clerical lay leaders. The religious ideas of the Iranian Revolution, the application to modern politics of terms and images taken from the 7th century, should not, however, be taken entirely at face value. For sure, the role of Islam had a major impact on the social values of the Islamic Republic, particularly in regard to the position of women, of the law, the status of the clergy. At the same time, and on closer examination, the program and actions of Khomeini and his associates have indeed much in common with other modern social revolutions in appealing to the mass of the poor, in this case termed the Mostazafin, against the corrupt foreign-linked elite, the Mostagbarin, in the cult of the leader. Khomeini's official title on the radio was the leader of the revolution, the founder of the Islamic Republic, entirely secular terms, in mobilizing nationalist sentiment in a country that had been unilaterally invaded in both world wars in using, albeit in a chaotic and inefficient way, the oil wealth for egalitarian social programs in city and countryside, despite Khomeini's own disdain for economics. And in analyzing the world in terms of a just struggle of the oppressed peoples, among whom Khomeini explicitly included South Africa and Nicaragua at the time, against the dominant power. Khomeini did not use the word imperialism, 
term, by the way, invented in LSE by a liberal political economist Hobson in 1902, the most influential academic idea in the 20th century invented here by someone we didn't give tenure to. So. <laughs> um, but Khomeini, instead of talking imperialism, used the Quranic term, a rather good one in my view, estekbari jahani, global arrogance, not a bad description of a country we all know and love. Um, this question of the religiosity or secularism of Khomeini's rhetoric is clearly a major matter of major debate. There are those, such as my former teacher Bernard Lewis and others, who emphasize the religious, Quranic, and traditional character. But my own intuitions and sympathies lie with the modernists, the sociologists, such as Ervanda Abrahamian, Sami Zubeda, Aziz Al-Azmi, who have argued that for all the Quranic appearance, the message was a modern, populist, and nationalist one in Islamic guard. And the same would apply, to a large extent, to Al-Qaeda and other fundamentalist groups. Above all, of course, for all the apparent Islamic difference, the Islamic revolutions of 1979 did what all revolutionaries do, and what Theda Scotchwell emphasizes in her work, and which I saw with my own eyes them doing, namely after overthrowing an oppressive government to seize power for themselves and their allies, crush not only their opponents, but all dissidents with the regime, and then impose a new, more brutal, and intrusive authoritarian order. The model followed by the Islamic Republic in practice is not under examination that of Mecca and Medina and the caliphs in the 7th century, but that of Paris in the 1790s and Moscow and St. Petersburg in the 1920s. This prevalence of secular modern concerns is evident in other respects, and I want to stress one with regard to foreign policy. The Constitution of Iran commits it to supporting struggling Muslims around the world, and this it does in Iraq, I think with great success now, with the help of George Bush, uh, in Afghanistan, with less success in, of course, Palestine, Lebanon, and elsewhere. But where the clear state interest of the Islamic Republic conflicts with Islamic solidarity, it is state interest which prevails. Hence, support for India over Kashmir against Pakistan, for Beijing against the Muslims in Xinjiang, for Russia over Chechnya, and much nearer at home, and that's most surprising of all, for Christian Armenia over Nagorno-Karabakh against Shiite Azerbaijan. Here, state interest prevails, and indeed dictates foreign policy. Emphasis on the apparently unique religious character of the Iranian Revolution may also mislead the analysts in obscuring other dimensions in which this event is distinct. For in at least three other respects, the events of 78-79 were indeed different from the historic precursors. In the first place, this revolution, more than any other in history, relied not on force, not on violence, not on military insurrection or guerrilla war, but on politics. In particular, the two instruments that European revolutionaries had long dreamed of using themselves in more democratic countries. The mass mobilization of people in the streets, in the Iranian case, the largest opposition demonstrations probably in human history, and the politically motivated general strike, which from October 1978 paralyzed the country, the oil industry, and foreign trade. This, not the religious garb, was perhaps the most paradoxical and original aspect of the Iranian Revolution, namely that in its political form and process, and for all its medieval and apparently traditional guise, the Iranian Revolution was the first ever modern revolution, the first ever modern revolution. Hence, Despite the fact that there were military clashes and demonstrations, the, the political character revolution accounts for something that we too often ignore, which is a very low level of casualties. According to the regime's, the Islamic Republic's own figures, only 3,000 people were killed. 
in the whole 15 months leading up to the revolution and hardly anybody on the government side. This modernity of the revolution, however qualified and paradoxical, is evident in another unique feature of the Iranian revolution, namely that for all the cruelty, judicial killings and repression practiced by the regime, and it's still a dangerous place to be, it has permitted a degree of liberty, pluralism, and openness to the outside world unseen in any other major modern revolution. Political parties are banned in Iran, and power is held by an unaccountable and secretive manner by an Islamist nomenclatura. But in public life, in the majlis, in the press, in public debate, in everyday expressions of opinion, for all the newspaper closures and for all the pressures, a wide and genuinely representative range of opinions are heard. Access to the outside world, individual travel, have never been controlled except for those under political suspicion and in a way that no other revolutionary regime has ever permitted. Fear, intimidation, arbitrary closure of the media are certainly prevalent in the Iran of today. But in the degree of variety of opinions expressed 30 years after the revolution, Iran stands in marked contrast to Cuba, Vietnam, or China, or before that, the Soviet Union, and even at later stages of their post-revolutionary evolution. Secondly, as in all previous cases, and as all textbooks of historical sociology remind us throughout the 1970s, the weakening of the state, an indispensable condition of revolution, was to a considerable degree facilitated by foreign powers, and particularly defeating war and invasion, as in the French, Chinese, Russian, Cuban cases, or in the withdrawal by support of a foreign patron, as was also in the case in Cuba. In the Iranian case, none of this occurred. Iran was backed to the end by the USA. It was also backed by China, by the Europeans, and the Russians simply didn't know what to do. For years afterwards, the Russians used to say to me, sooner or later, Professor, the mullahs will come to their senses, but of course they didn't now. Uh, no outside state gave any support to the revolutionaries, and the Shah's army had not been defeated or weakened in war. In fact, it had occupied the islands of Sheikh Zayed, as I have to point out, in the lecture hall we're in. Finally, this was a revolution which was well organized through a network of mosque and local committees, but which had no central party and failed ever to consolidate one, as the Cubans did. It was the brief experiment with the ruling party in 1979, the Islamic Republican Party, soon petered out. International factors have, however, most certainly come to play their role in the period since 1979, brutal in the case of the Iraqi invasion, long-term in the form of American allied sanctions, which have inhibited economic growth and change, and of great concern to the mullahs today, the cultural influences of the West, of consumerism, and of the internet. Not for nothing do the mullahs rail against Taha Jomei Farhangi, cultural aggression. And no doubt, with the help of Chinese security technologies, they are seeking to control bloggers, chat rooms, and the internet. Of the broader issues I mentioned earlier, I want to mention two others now. We can turn to us. One is the broad question of the relationship of this revolution to earlier phases of Iranian history. Uh, it is worth recalling, as Iranians know well, that the history of Iran in modern times has been punctuated by upheavals, be that of the Barbies in the 19th century, the Constitutional Revolution, the 1940s. So this was not an interruption, but rather a continuation of an earlier pattern of mobilization, which goes back at least 100 years, uh, and which may well continue in different forms. Secondly, in terms of the broader social science question of agency and structure, uh, this 
clearly relates to and abuts onto a very controversial issue in the Iranian Revolution, which is could it have been prevented? Could the Shah have stopped it? Could the Americans have stopped it? And the second question, which affected many friends of mine, could they have prevented Khomeini from taking complete control and crushing the left and liberal forces? On the first, once one admits the possibility that history could have taken a different course, and bearing in mind what Saddam and Hafez al-Assad did faced with revolutions that were much more threatening than that of Khomeini, uh, I would argue that Shah and the Americans could have crushed the revolution, but they didn't. And one has to ask why, what failure of nerve, what failure of determination after a few months or years after Vietnam with a highly fragmented elite army around them uh, led them to do this. Indeed, for me, one of the not conspiratorially mysterious, but historically mysterious questions I hope someday will answer is how was it that an army of 400,000 disappeared completely in a matter of weeks? It's never been seen before. I interviewed some years later the first Minister of Defense of the Islamic Republic, Admiral Madani, an intelligent and liberal man. And he told me that on the first day of his assuming office after the Islamic Revolution, he went to the large base of Sultanabad in Tehran and walked from one end to the other. He said there wasn't a single person or weapon to be seen in the whole place. How did this happen? How was it that this apparently secure regime collapsed? What was the role of agency and structure in it? I discount the more obvious conspiracy theories that the Americans or General Heiser did it in order to get rid of the Shah, but certainly something of great interest to any student of historical sociology as well as the history of Iran occurred. As for the influence of the past, I think point about Khomeini is that he represented a break, much as he invoked the past. In fact, for Khomeini, there were no antecedents. Most revolutions and most nationalists portray themselves as the continuation of an earlier generation of heroes, usually in nationalist museum, lots of men with large mustaches going back into the 19th and 18th centuries. In the Iranian case, no. For him, from the death of the prophet, the death of Ali and Hussein, to his revolution, there was almost nothing of any legitimating source whatsoever, apart from a few philosophers, the Usuli or fundamentalist philosophers of the early 19th century. And in particular, he had to eliminate from the legitimacy of Iranian history the figure of the person who was undoubtedly the most legitimate and respected leader of modern Iran, the Prime Minister Mossadegh, ousted in 1953. And this, as I saw very clearly, he most certainly did, participating as I did in the demonstrations organized by the Mossadegh's party, which were broken up by Hezbollahis, shouting Magbar liberalism, Magbar Ghag, in the summer of 1979. I had no doubt that this eradication of Mossadegh from the Iranian revolutionary memory and pantheon was an important part of the establishment of the legitimacy of the regime. So to conclude, Against this background of aspects in which the Iranian Revolution was similar and was not similar to others, the Iran of today appears as another case of a revolution approaching its middle years, but far from abandoned or defeated. Domestically, in a post-revolutionary climate, freer and more diverse than that seen in any other revolution, but with violence, cruelty, and arbitrary intimidation never far away, and political and social pressure growing, a wide range of opinions and interpretations of the revolutionary program can be heard. The presidential elections of this June will in this regard be important, but given the plurality of power centers and opinions, it cannot be definitive, even if Khatami is re-elected. 
and let's hope it is a more resolute and organized Khatami than the last time around. Internationally, Iran, exactly like its other post-imperial counterparts, France, Russia, and China, pursues its dual foreign policy, one that combines aspirations of regional and military influence, as in Iraq, with continued promotion of radicalism in neighboring countries. The people of Iran, resourceful, long-suffering, and sardonic as they are, and the Middle East region and the world have not yet heard the last of the Islamic Revolution and of this great nation. Thank you. Okay, Fred, I think we're going to get one or two questions. Uh, can people put their hands up? That does help me, and given that I don't have extra century. There's a gentleman here who's gone up very quickly. <coughs> where's, the, where's the people with the microphones on this side? If you just keep, yeah. Is there anybody over here? Okay, a gentleman here, please, yeah. Thank you. Please uh, just make a question, thanks. Uh, thank you. My name's John Yeom, and I'd like to ask if the Americans are to achieve their state objectives in Afghanistan, would it not be sensible for them to have a rapprochement with Iran comparable to the one which they had with China in 1971-72? Thank you. Did everybody hear that? Okay. Uh, could you? Could, uh, yeah. Could you? Should I do one? I think. I yeah, you do it first, because yeah. Um, first of all, I think it's evident, and it's certainly evident to Richard Holbrook, that the situation in Afghanistan is much more serious than the situation in Iraq. And as an academic, let me point out one obvious historical difference. In Iraq, there is a history, going back to the Ottomans, to the British, to the monarchy, to Saddam, of a centralized state and of administration. In Afghanistan, there is no such history. Secondly, unnoticed by most, the conflict in Iraq differs from many others in the Middle East, from Palestine, from Cyprus, from Kashmir, in that the neighboring states, for all that they have different interests, are not at loggerheads, are not using Iraq as a proxy. They each, the Saudis, the Turks, the Iranians want their interests protected. But there is a significant shared overlap. And as such, for all the mistakes that have happened since 2003, on all parts, they have not actually sought to partition or to undermine Iraq for their own sole interests. Which the problem with Palestine, with Cyprus, Kashmir, Afghanistan it is in part that. So uh, it's quite right that they should look for an accommodation with Iran. However, the United States has shown itself unable to see that if they wish to have peace in Afghanistan or Iraq, they have to find an accommodation with Iran. A few, two years ago, I think we had a visit here from the very distinguished Arab political scientist Hassan Salami. Hassan was an advisor to the UN in Iraq after 2003. He was in the UN building when Sergio de Mello was killed, along with 28 colleagues. And he made a very important point. He said, the real occupying power in Iraq is not the United States, it's Iran. The Iranians have more power economically, diplomatically, culturally, than the Americans. And what I find amazing is that in the press coverage of the last five or six years, this hardly ever gets mentioned. <coughs> An example, two examples. One, why did Muqtada Sada declare a ceasefire? which has artificially lowered the combat rates to allow people to exaggerate the role of the surge because the Iranians encouraged him to do so. They don't control him, but they... 
When the negotiations over the status of forces agreement with the Americans and the Iraqis were reached, the Iranians were virtually in the next door room, and they supported it. Without that, it would never have gone forward. And yet this is ignored. So in effect, in Iraq, there is an accommodation. The problem in Afghanistan is the Iranians don't actually have that much influence. The Iranians <coughs> have annexed, in effect, the three western provinces of Afghanistan along their frontier. Herat, Shindand, and I've forgotten the third one it's called. Economically, security, politically, they control those three provinces as a cordon sanitaire. But beyond that, although there are Shiites in Afghanistan, although they had a historic link to the Northern Alliance, they, they can't deliver as they could have delivered in 2003, 2004 in Iraq. But yes, if they're going to, I think I would make it more broader, if the United States is going to find a way out of Afghanistan, they're going to have to do two things. One is, and everybody knows this, get rid of Karzai and bring in someone else. There are candidates, so I won't say who. Um, and do a deal, I mean, the euphemism with, with some parts of the Taliban. But having said that the Taliban were like Al-Qaeda terrorists, this is taking a bit of doing, and the Taliban will play hard to get. Uh, but secondly, there will have to be, as there was in 2001, an agreement between the six plus two, between the six neighbors. Uh, and the trouble with that, of course, is there's one country which doesn't want to share responsibility, which is Pakistan. And the central point about Afghanistan is once, it wasn't that the victory of 2001 was totally illusory, although in many ways it was. It was that once the Pakistanis saw the difficulties America was in in Iraq in 2004, 2005, they decided to go back on the offensive in Afghanistan. But of course there's one other country which paradoxically has come back into the play and may have a very important role in the future of Afghanistan, which is Russia. Not because it now has a border with Afghanistan, but because the former Soviet republics that do border Afghanistan have virtually no armed forces, and therefore Moscow is again playing a role. Whether an accommodation is possible, I am more skeptical than most, because if you have a kind of E.H. Carr dual policy view of the Iranians, and despite the benign coverage of the BBC, which, which I congratulate it, the Iranians are going to play very hard to get, and may again overplay their hand, not for the first time. What is this mysterious BBC There's program? been a series on the BBC. This is by? By Brook Productions for yeah. brilliant people. But I think they, they yeah. I mean, it's like the Arab-Israeli question, you interview the nice people. Yeah. That's right. I just wanted to get the BBC out of the way yeah, before. No, no, no. Uh, okay, uh, the gentleman over here. Yeah. 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 Thank you, Professor Halliday, for a very delightful presentation. Uh, you briefly alluded to the elections in your presentation. Could you speak a bit slower, slower. and a bit louder? You briefly alluded to the elections uh, during your presentation. Just take it a step further. Uh, in your view or in your reading of the current ground sentiments in Iran, uh, can we expect the unexpected uh, in the Iranian elections uh, this year, particularly its uh, uh, change in its foreign policy towards America? Thanks so much. Well, first of all, if what I've said is true, that is, there is a degree of pluralism in Iran, even though political parties are not permitted, then the outcome of the election is, un is unpredictable, as in a normal election, even though many people are not allowed to stand. Secondly, let us not forget that the victory of Ahmadinejad in 2005 was largely unpredicted, even by many people in Iran, and was very carefully prepared. I mean, he, he and his Revolutionary Guard so, so prepared it, and they used a military metaphor to 
driving in convoy by night without lights. That was, the, that was their phrase for the election, driving by convoy at night without lights. That's how they took, won the election. But they didn't fake the votes itself. They organized and they mobilized people, including many former communists voted for him, a point that's often forgotten. Um, <clears throat> so it is, un it is unsure. Clearly, Ahmadinejad has overplayed his hand. Clearly, uh, the fallen oil revenues doesn't help. But the nuclear issue is very popular inside the country. It's not at all clear whether the person with the real power in Iran, the Faqih Ayatollah Khamenei, will ditch Ahmadinejad or not. So we just don't know. But even were Khatami to come in, let us remember that Rafsanjani, who was president for eight years, and then Khatami, were both trying to do deals with the Americans and so forth. And in the end, they couldn't do it. Why? Because Khamenei was against because at times they overplayed their hand, and also because, let us not forget, that in the United States, because of the hostage crisis and because of everything that's happened since, including in Lebanon and Palestine and Gaza, there is immense hostility to Iran. And this will not be easy to overcome. I would like to think they would sit down and do a deal. And there are many very clever Iranian diplomats, some of whom I know, and, some, and there are very clever American diplomats. But whether they can do a deal, whether political conditions will be right, we have to wait and see. But the logic of it is there. But I do not believe, given that Iran remains a revolutionary power, and it's a power which aspires to regional, regional influence, if not hegemony, that they will simply abandon Hezbollah or abandon Hamas, and that if they tried to do so, Hezbollah or Hamas would agree to what they said. No, I don't believe that. Any more than I don't believe the Americans can simply call up the Israelis mm. and say, abandon the West Bank. And so it won't happen. It, it doesn't work like that. There's a question. Um, this one take. There's a lady in red there, please. Yeah, along here. No, no, no go back. Go back up. Go back up. Go back. Yeah, thank you. Please. Uh, hi. I just want to ask you um, if you think the um, the war would have not been enforced in Iran. Uh, do you think the revolution would have moved in different direction? And I can't. We can't hear you down here. Is it turned on? Uh, it is, okay. uh, my question is, yeah. um, if the war was not imposed in Iran, do you think the revolution would have changed and in a different direction than it is now? Because I think most of Iranians gone in, uh, into to, uh, revolutions to change the things for everybody. And it's not, not just one group. And at the moment, everything's just been influenced with one group taking the power and always elected. And this is what I think most of Iranian wants to see others get the power as well and bring changes. So like, like become more like a West. We got, um, we got democracy here. Everyone got the Lib Democrats and Labour or Conservative. So everyone can choose what uh, group they want right. to be a part of. Okay. Great. Thank you. Did you ask about the war? Did you say, was, it, was about the war? Okay. Did you ask about if the war, if the Iraqis hadn't attacked? Is that what you said? Yeah. Yes. Let me say something as academic, which will not please the Iranians in the audience. Yes, Saddam Hussein attacked Iran on the 22nd of September 1980 in clear violation of the UN Charter. But Iran must bear some responsibility for the outbreak of this war. The mullahs were shouting about Saddam as a new Targut who they're going to overthrow. They were calling for revolution in Iraq. They were irresponsibly stoking up the Kurds in the north. Uh, and this gave Saddam at least the opportunity to do what he wanted to do, which is to try and hit Iran, and also gave him legitimacy in the Arab world. 
I was in Baghdad in April 1980, uh, and I remember talking to some people in the bazaar about the Iranian Revolution. And they said, why are these Iranians shouting all the time? Why can't you tell them to shut up? <laughs> we had a revolution before they had a revolution. We were Shiites before they had a revolution. Why are Iranians always shouting? That day, something very dramatic happened. I, I, by coincidence, I was given an appointment with a curious cigar-smoking gentleman called Tariq Aziz. And then, as happens in Iraq, the meeting was canceled, and you didn't know why. It emerged that that day he'd gone to the university and there'd been an assassination attempt on his life in the Mostanseri University by someone who was said to be or accused of being an Iranian agent. And this moment, so far as we know, was the moment when Saddam decided to attack Iran in April 1980. He went on television that night and he said, blood will be answered with blood. It's a very Saddam's thing. And that's when he began to prepare seriously the attack on Iran. He obviously believed that he could knock out the regime quickly and it was said that he lost the war because he didn't win it in two weeks. He underestimated the ability of the Iranian irregular and regular forces to reassemble themselves at terrible cost. But if you look back, just go to the SOAS library and read the summary of world broadcast, BBC, for the nine months before, the statements coming out of Iran were very irresponsible and chilling. It wasn't state policy any more than the seizure of the American embassy on the first day. It wasn't state policy, but it had consequences. Uh, and therefore, both sides uh, bear some responsibility for its starting. Secondly, as I say, Saddam was on his knees in the summer of 1980. The Iranians had reoccupied Fao. They were at the gates of Basra. And he offered a very, very good deal, better than they later got. And Khomeini accepted. But the head of the Revolutionary Guards, Rafik Dust, went to see him and said, no, oh, we can march to Karbala, to Jerusalem. So, and he changed his mind. And six more years of terrible bloodshed, including the rocketing of Tehran, in which 3,500 people died, followed. So yes, I think the war did have a huge influence. And I think in any academic sense, it was the war, with its enormous suffering, which forged and steeled this regime more than the revolution. The revolution itself was dramatic, but very few people died. How many people died in the war, we don't know. Seriously, the regime says only 16,000, whereas others have set up to half a million. We don't know. But this tone of the Islamic leaders, that we are tough, we are hard, above all comes from that time. And there's a very chilling statement which Khamenei often makes. He says, we are not weaklings like little Mr. Salvador Allende to be blown aside by a puff of smoke from the CIA. We are Islamic revolutionaries, and we will not be overthrown. And this very harsh attitude, a very tough attitude, is one that uh, I think was forged at that time and had very serious consequences for the Iranian society and also for the Iranian economy, as, as we know. I'll take over here, yeah. Yeah, General's going out. Yeah, please, and I'll come over there. Where do you think the clash over the nuclear program is going regarding the West and Iran, the clash of the nuclear program? That was a question about the nuclear weapons program. Fred? The only answer I can give is a very Persian one, Khoda <laughs> Miduni. I no. God knows, I don't know. Um, I have no doubt that Iran, I, first of all, given what happened in the Cold War, and given what happened with the Iraqi weapons of mass destruction program, a person who is not on the inside track cannot evaluate what is really happening. I'm, I always say I'm not a spy, and I'm not a nuclear scientist, engineer. And I can't evaluate what they've got, 
the centrifuges, whether they're one day away or one year away, and one intelligence report on one another, given it's all a political football, I don't know. But my political instinct is very simple. Yes, of course, Iran wants at least to acquire what used to be called nuclear ambiguity, what the Israelis and Africans have. People believe they have the capability. Uh, why? First of all, to deter attack. If Saddam had had nuclear weapons, he wouldn't have been attacked the way he was in March 2003. Secondly, for the same reasons the British and the French have their nuclear weapons, to make themselves look big. But there's a third lesson, which comes, I think, one of the lessons, very important lessons of the Cold War. Why was it that the Russians and the Americans went on accumulating tens of thousands of missiles, long beyond any military logic, throughout the Cold War? The reason, which is evident above all in the key crisis of the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, if you have superiority in the number of nuclear weapons, it gives you an edge in a crisis or negotiation situation. It gives you that edge to face down the other side. So superiority is not to use the weapons, it's to give you an edge over the other side in a crisis. And the Iranians, looking around a world of crisis in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, who knows what in the Gulf, in the Caucasus, in Iraq, in Palestine, in Lebanon, and so on, naturally feel they want to be a regional power and they need nuclear credibility to give them an edge in any crisis that may emerge. This is one of the basic lessons of the Cold War, which we should, people say the Cold War doesn't have any lessons, there's many lessons, and Nick and I would, would we agree on that? I would, we yeah, I go with that. Um, yeah. So, which one? I, which one? I, so I think there is a logic. Where, the, where they're at, I don't know. Could the United States or Israel or attack them? Yes, they could tomorrow. I, it's quite possible. I just don't know. Um, and I, nor do I know, because I'm not a spy engineer, whether it would be possible to identify all the places or not. The Iranians have dug in deep and so forth. But one other consequence of all of this we can be sure of. States in the region are watching and are reacting. The Iranian program, to me, was spurred in part, not by the Israelis, by the Pakistanis in 1998. They said, if these little Pakistani, had these Pakistani doggy, can get nuclear weapons, how come we are a great nation we can't have these outrageous? So the Iranians are not very democratic about their neighbors, I won't. <laughs> uh, or indeed anybody, but especially. Um, and they, so that, this effect, affected their pride, of course, accentuated by what? By a regional conflict, which was Afghanistan, where the Pakistanis had just killed, or they sort of killed eight Iranian or ten Iranian diplomats in Mazar So this, 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 this political logic is there. And they could well be attacked. But, of course, the logic that led the Iranians to imitate the Pakistanis, or to pretend they're, or don't know what they're doing, is going to lead the Arabs to do the same. And if you're a professor at LSE, you meet all sorts of people. I mean, every week you meet people from 30 countries. And we had a, had a Saudi student here who was well-connected, close to, as they always say, close to, he's close. <laughs> and he called me up the other day and he said, look, professor, will you tell your Iranian friends that if they think they can get nuclear weapons in a few years, we can get them in a few months? And he put the phone. <laughs> now, whether this is true or not, but this was the message. And clearly, many of the countries in the Gulf are thinking about this and so on. And basically, they can buy something from the Pakistanis or the Koreans whenever they want. That's the reality. Not to mention some kind of Indian-style deal with the Americans. So it, it, is a, it has got dangerous consequences. Uh, and I do not exclude, I did not exclude an attack by the Israelis and Americans before the, the end of the Bush administration. I don't know now, but it may be that something will be worked out. But a return to the nuclear non-proliferation regime 
envisaged in the 1970s, forget it. But for that, many people are responsible, including those who refused to ratify it again in the US Congress. Okay, I'll move to the left. You have to come down as a, you come down as a lady here. Glasses, yeah. Please, yeah. Hi, good evening. Uh, my question is on US sanctions policy. Uh, what do you think are the unintended consequences of said policy, and as well as where within the Iranian government do you see the greatest influence or impact of the policy on its internal behavior? Which government? Do you mean the US government or uh, the Iranian government? Well, the answer to the second question, I think, is well known. The desire to Khamenei holds a veto power over all major issues, including foreign policy. And he is simply, ref in the Khatami period, Khatami tried to get him to change his mind and agree to negotiations, and he refused. Uh, whether he agrees now remains to be seen. And of course, if, I mean, thinking in a Tehrani way, if they think the Americans are on the run in Iraq, they're in trouble in Palestine, they're in trouble in Afghanistan, why should we make concessions to them? We've been here 3,000 years, and these little Arabis have come for a few decades, let them run away again. That's very much the way they look at it. So I don't necessarily think that they will um, be quick to strike a deal. Mention was made earlier of China in 1972, because China in 1972, A, was a highly centralized country in which all decisions were taken by half a dozen people at most. I remember once asking somebody who knew the Chinese leadership at that time, there are a billion people in China, how many of them are well informed about the outside world? And he said, a dozen, maybe six. <laughs> this was in an era before the, you have to go back, no internet, no Herald Tribune, no economists, no MSCs at LSE, this is a highly <laughs> isolated world. Whereas in, in Iran today, um, it's much more difficult than the, the parliament and the many, many more centers of power. A land of a thousand sheriffs, as the first prime minister, Bazagan, rightly put it. <laughs> um, so I think that that will complicate things. I think, I, I repeat, because it's my only advice I've ever given to the Iranian leadership is don't repeat the overplaying of the hand of all your predecessors. And of course, that is something they are liable to do, and they did in Iran, to great cost to themselves. But certainly, some accommodations there. On the question of sanctions policy, the Iranian diplomats and people I've met operate in many ways with ideas taken over from the communist world. And one of them, very simple old idea, probably rooted by the Chinese, is they can divide the imperialists. So they can have hostile relations with America, but have good relations with the Europeans and the Japanese. Now, in the modern globalized world, that doesn't mean anything. If American banks are sanctioned for dealing with Iran, and if you are unable to trade with, and have at least normal relations with America, the, the one I was using, Algeria in the 70s was a revolutionary country, but it has correct relations with America, embassies and so on didn't mess around. <coughs> Iran doesn't have those kind of relations, and as a result, no bank, no investment company in the world will want to deal with Iran. Now, of course, they can do deals, but a much higher price without insurance and so forth. And constantly, stuff will be cancelled. So they pay a much higher price because the world economy is integrated uh, and you don't get export guarantees. And so this myth of dividing the imperials doesn't apply in the modern world, but they don't many of them don't understand that. Um, and as a result, it's contributed to the problems of the economy. But the main problem of the economy is the complete mismanagement of the economy by the Islamic nomenclatura and by somebody like Ahmadinejad. And here, in a odd way, Khomeini's dismissive observation comes back to haunt us. They don't 
use economists properly. They don't have a proper program. As everybody who's done business with Iran knows, they chew up. You meet somebody who's a banker, who's an oil company, or someone developing a free trade zone somewhere, and next week they're out, they disappear. This goes on and on and on. Of course, Chavez is doing the same thing in Venezuela. Um, but it, so it, it, the effects are multiple, let alone investment, let alone something that requires major long-term investment, which is not the oil industry, but the gas industry. And all of this is arrested and wasted by this, this chaotic situation. So the sanctions doesn't mean people can starve and they can import food and they can do this, something or the other. It certainly acts as a major blight on the economy, compounded by the, 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 the chaotic nature of their own uh, economic policy. Okay, there's lots of hands that have gone up, but I'm, I'm going to take two questions over here, and I think we're going to call it a day. The gentleman in white shirt, and then the lady directly behind you. So I apologize to people over here. Sir? I'm wondering um, what advice you would give Obama in terms of the American negotiating stance, because the dialogue clearly between Iran and America is never an easy dialogue. Mm -hmm. I wonder whether it's to do with listening more, whether it's to do with concessions, whether it's to do with talking tough. I wonder what could, could normalize some sort of dialogue. Okay, advice to Obama, Fred. And uh, <laughs> the next question will be advice to the... Hi, Professor. Um, you mentioned the uh, Arab response to Iran's nuclear uh, program. What about the Israeli response, especially now that Netanyahu appears poised to uh, form a right-wing coalition, possibly? So what advice to the new Israeli prime minister? <laughs> <laughs> Can you manage that in my I once, I once appeared on a television program with Netanyahu. And he, oh. listened, he said, I agree with everything Fred said. He said, <laughs> I, it's a slight embarrassing moment for me, but I'll <laughs> <laughs> go over it. Um, well. On the Israeli, um, I mean, I'm critical of Israel, but I go to Israel, I'm against boycotts. I believe we should talk to them and argue with them like anyone else in the world. Uh, <clears throat> and the, the Israel that I know is not going to give in to American pressure. Uh, on key issues of national security and national pride, such as the territories. Forget it. On the nuclear issue, however, is a different matter, because it would appear, and we, we can never know, but I find the story at least initially plausible that Bush dissuaded them from an attack on the Iranians before the American presidential elections. And if that was the case under Bush, it would probably still continue. Although we must not underestimate the Israeli distrust of Obama and indeed, why they attacked Gaza when they did would be forever debated, of course, like any other major event. But one factor was to get in a blow before Obama actually came into office and to some extent to tie his hands. Uh, so relations between Obama and the Israelis will not be easy. Even if Barack or Sibi Libni had come back, they would not have been easy. And on the nuclear issue, I think they can still restrain the Israelis, but it's not a foregone conclusion. What I don't know, and I have no way of knowing, because I say I'm not a spy on engineers, what damage the Israelis could actually do to longer-run Iranian plans. Uh, and <coughs> that's something which uh, is a technical issue, which I'm not confident. I don't think anybody reading the public material can possibly judge that, and maybe the Israelis don't know themselves. And let us be clear, from all the hints and the informal chat you hear, the Israelis have a reasonable intelligence operation in the Middle East, but they're, they're not actually, don't know, an awful lot of things they don't know either. Uh, they're not superhuman. I mean, in the neighboring countries, maybe. But beyond that, they don't actually know lots of things. Uh, and they often overstate, or people ascribe to them knowledge which they don't actually have, any more than the Americans have. I would say that those people in Israel who do know Iran, 
who are people of Iranian origin, academics David Menashri, are people who are extremely sensible and well-informed about Iran, uh, and whose, whose judgments I respect. But they are not on the hawkish side, and they are not advocating regime change or any nonsense, or thinking that the minorities will ride up in Iran or everything else. And as in America, the experts in Israel are not listened to by the politicians. It's a problem. Um, on Obama, do your best, take your time. But I, I would think that if we were in the White House now, the first thing that would be on the mind, apart from the financial crisis of his advisors, is let's not put Obama on the road to being another Jimmy Carter. That's the most important thing, to protect him from appearing naive and getting involved with these things. The Iranians will not be easy to negotiate with. Uh, they will overplay their hand. Were there to be, inshallah, a reason to year withdrawal from Iraq, and were the Iraqi new political structures to hold, and these are very big ifs, then one huge issue in American-Iranian relations would be removed. And in effect, George Bush would have handed the Iranian revolution a great victory, because this new Iraqi regime, if it survives, will not be a client of Iran's, but will be a friendly ally of Iran's. And Iran will have interests in Iraq long after the last American soldier is gone. And this will be George Bush's great contribution to the Iranian revolution. But it will remove a problem. And in Iraq, the Iranians have shown remarkable good sense. And since they've stopped doing the most provocative things, they've calmed down Muqtada Sada. They've, to my great surprise, more or less backed the Stationing of Forces Agreement. But on the other hand, what's happened in Iraq, and this should worry the Americans as well, is in effect the Iranians no longer control the people who they once controlled. Iraqi politics is highly fragmented. There are no national parties, high levels of corruption. And the Iranians can't deliver now what they could have delivered in 2003-2004. But I, I think, you know, given that the presidential advisors look to their domestic constituencies, I think that uh, Obama will make some, say some nice things, and then we'll see what actually happens. But I think on Iraq, they may find a deal. The nuclear issue may be tranquilized or may not. I have no way of knowing. On Afghanistan, they might try and do something, although I would stress the Iranians don't have much leeway. Lebanon, it would seem that this new coalition arrived at in a very odd way may last. But it leaves the question of Palestine, which I don't see them being able to find a common ground on, because the Iranians would not be able to deliver Hamas, and the Americans cannot not deliver the Israelis. So they will have to accept that, and not to raise hopes too high. I think that's also very important. Okay, I think we'll, uh, we'll draw the proceedings for this evening to a close. I actually didn't realize I'd learned quite so much from Ayatollah Khomeini when he said that economics is for donkeys. I think in the context of the current economic crisis in the West, he may have been a man 30 years before his time. Um, <clears throat> I had to make that one. I had to make. The other thing is that Fred was also arguing for a Khomeini a joke book. I think we should have a Fred Halliday joke book. You know, you can tell he's Irish. It's just the way he tells them. But you also got a good collection there, Fred. So I think my next edited book will be your, your jokes. Do you mind? Yeah, but mo most, most Iranian jokes are on repeat. Oh. <laughs> well, that doesn't matter. It's the same in Ireland, anyway. Anyway, uh, judging, judging by the numbers here tonight, I think it tells a lot about this university, this great institution, and one of the great people at this institution, Fred Halliday. Fred, welcome back. You never left. Thank you.